Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Community Exchange Podcast, brought to you by OpenWeb. On this podcast, we track the development and growth of the community economy by talking to the leaders in media, tech, trust, and beyond who are bringing it to life. Continuing on our series, today's episode was recorded in front of a live audience of about 50 people from the publishing and advertising industry as part of our ongoing webinar series. Uh, today, we are really happy to have Arishel Navicchio and Michael Liss of the New York Post on the podcast. Arishel is the Senior Vice President and Head of Technology at the New York Post. In this role and over the last 15 years, Arishel has guided the New York Post evolution into the great digital media brand that we know today. Uh, Michael Liss, also joining us, is the Vice President of Product at the New York Post. He plays a leading role in digital initiatives across Post, Page Six, Decider, um, these are some of the web's most passionate communities, um, and we cover a lot in today's episode. Michael and Arachelle share their insights on how they've turned the Post community into an engine for loyalty, engagement, and first-party data. We talk uh, about how they plan to leverage that data to create better experiences for users and continue growth. Um, and they are sharing strategies in this episode that publishers can implement right away to beat their goals and build a healthy community. Uh, again, we're really excited to have them on the episode today. Uh, so let's get on with the interview. So uh, first, I want to understand how our guests today look at and think about community. Um, you know, this is simply because not all publishers work with the same exact definition of community. Uh, so Arshel, uh, we'll start with you for this one, and then we can kind of go around the room. How do you define community, and what is your working definition at the Post? Sure. So... My definition of community has changed quite a bit in the last three to four years that we've been working with Open Web. So initially, community meant participation in conversation via commenting via commenting platform, but users had to be logged in, right? So it was a very logged in experience for me when I thought about community. In reality, over time, with new features that we've we've had available to us via open web, we now have reactions where anonymous users can react on different topics or different articles that we have across our network. So when I think about it in, in like in its truest form, it's like giving our audience a voice, right? So the platform and the community that we have allows us to give logged in users to have conversations with each other have conversations with us if they want to directly, or just react anonymously and participate in, in the feedback loop that we've created. So we also have topic pages where we, it's really called Ask Me Anythings, where we do use them on our site um, pretty frequently, where our audience can have one-on-one -on -one discussions with our talent. So community is really giving a voice. And uh, Michael, anything you want to add? Yeah, I think it also you know extends beyond what's on the website. You have to look across the other platforms we have and other places where our audience is interacting with us and could possibly be leaving comments or not. So certainly, Facebook and Twitter and TikTok and Instagram and you know that's all really part of it too. It's not just when they're coming to our owned and operated platforms, but also the ones that are interacting with us elsewhere. And I'd even add newsletters where even though newsletters is really, newsletters isn't two-way, it's much more one-way, but it's still a different way that we're reaching our audience in a different space that's a bit more intimate. And so in looking at community, it's really kind of connecting all of those dots together and not only what might be happening on the bottom of one of your article pages on your website. 
or in your app? Yeah, the that interplay between um, community outside of the owned properties and on the owned properties is something that we were actually we'll talk about a little bit today. Um, and Lior, anything else you want to add there? Yeah, well, um, I totally agree with both. Um, I think the way that we and I personally see community goes in three ways, basically. One is giving people a voice, as, as you just mentioned, but give a variety of abilities for users to, to bring their voice, right? Whether it's text, audio, video, whatever this is, understanding the general social landscape and how people want to communicate. Uh, this is one. The second of it is do it in a way that allows people to feel part of a tribe, right? People want to be part of a community. And lastly, at Open, we want to make sure that all of that happens in a healthy and civil way. So this is our you know, input into how community should be built and how do we define it. Cool. Um, and that kind of leads us right to this next question. I think. And um, this is something that I think a lot of publishers, probably people in the audience right now, struggle with. Um, and it's about those interactions on your owned properties, right? It's about making that decision to offer those interactions, social experiences like commenting uh, in the first place. So just for a little bit of background, um, the New York Post works with OpenWeb to host comments, which we call conversation, user polls, which we call reactions, ask me anything like RXL mentioned. Um, and today, the New York Post is actually one of the most active and engaged communities on the entire OpenWeb network. Uh, there's millions of comments from hundreds of thousands of users, and those engaged users spend up to 15 times more time on site than their less engaged counterparts. Um, but before these solutions were in place, New York Post articles didn't feature ways for these users to interact. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of publishers find themselves in a similar position today. Um, so Michael, we can start with you for this one. Uh, what led the New York Post to decide to make this shift and start to really embrace these social experiences? You know, we've been in and out of, com of the comment game in a way that I think a lot of publishers have. When I first got to the post in 2014, we did have comments through another vendor that I don't think is even still in business necessarily. And then, you know, we kept going for a little while. We sort of turned that off because we had a different strategy towards it. And there was also a bit of an industry-wide shift away from it at that point. And then we first started working with you guys back when it was still Spot.im. And specifically on one of our other websites where we brought comments back. And then again, we just sort of shifted the strategy away until more recently and the engagement that we're discussing on this webinar today, certainly a lot has changed throughout all of that time. One of the biggest reasons is going to be for us right now, the at the end of the day, there's so many benefits to the community and the engagement and all of that stuff, but it's really at the same time, a first party data play and the need across the industry, especially as a non-digital subscription service to have more registered, logged in, known users. It's becoming incredibly important right now. And this is a great way to lean into it. That said, when we did first re-engage with you all and start ramping up commenting slowly, it was within our Sports Plus membership product. And so that really was leaning in first in a truly community-driven way that within this membership product for our most, our biggest sports fans slash biggest post fans, we really wanted them to be able to engage with each other and engage, as Arishel was saying earlier, with our talent. And that's where it, you know, this was a pre-crawl, crawl, walk, run kind of process. 
that's where we started. And then we kind of moved into sports and took it from there. So, I mean, there's, there's plenty of other great benefits to the community itself, to the engagement that it causes, to the revenue that it generates, both in a direct and indirect way. But again, the, the way that we can use it to hopefully grow the amount of first party data we have and the tightness of our relationship with our readers is certainly one of the biggest pushes to it as well. Yeah, and we'll touch on first party data more specifically in a little bit, because um, there's a lot to talk about there, I think. Um, but yeah, Arishel, anything to, to add there? No, like Michael just, just said, we first came into wanting to build a community through the launch of our, our sports membership product. But the one thing actually I didn't think about till right now until Michael was talking is that as soon as we gave our users the ability to comment on our sports stories, we then got multiple emails from a lot of our audience to say, hey, we would like to have a conversation outside of sports membership as well. So we then extended extended our capabilities to other sections slow, slowly, but but it did happen because we wanted to make sure that we could build a process, trust the process, and, and, and launch and have more scale. And I think today um, we are, of course, we're still in that sports membership. We're on NewYorkPost.com, but then I think also now very recently on page six um, and Decider as well. Is that right? That's correct. Cool. You're everywhere at this point. Yeah, right. And um, Lior, is there anything you might want to add to this just from the perspective of, um, you know, in your engagement with uh, Open Web's partners, anything that you might hear uh, from across the network, other publishers that we work with that may be similar or different? So, yeah, <clears throat> there's a lot of similarity in terms of, you know, uh, requirements for new features and capabilities, but at the end of the day, we are here to find a way to support, well, community and conversations uh, sometimes is one, when you talk about sports, it can be different when you talk about lifestyles and cooking recipes, whatever this is. And we are here to try and find a way that community and conversations can, you know, support any type of partner and any type of industry. Um, and again, understanding the first party data here, but the way we see first party data, me personally, is First body data is an exchange of value. We provide value to users, they create engagement, then we extract the first party data, then we can then leverage to improve the products in many, many ways. But bottom line, we are here to New York Post and other partners to listen to their needs and, and adopt accordingly. Sounds good, makes it's great. Um, and, and actually, I think this kind of has come up throughout. So I'll, I'll move on to our third topic for discussion. Um, something that, yeah, we've touched on a bit. This is about balancing safety uh, with community engagement and with the kind of scale that you at New York Post operate with. Um, and we're talking about this because today, a lot of publishers still have that view that community engagement, user-generated content might be difficult at least, or maybe even in some cases impossible, um, simply not worth it to manage. Um, and I think the story that Michael, you were telling about how you've been in and out with different commenting platforms over the years, um, I think that probably resonate with a lot of publishers. Um, and I think a lot of this is because of these earlier generations of online commenting platforms, moderation systems were not terribly sophisticated. Uh, and this could risk user safety, brand safety, you know, of course. Um, so Michael, I'll throw this one your way first. Um, how does New York Post manage to uphold community safety standards 
while playing host to the hundreds of thousands of comments and users uh, engaging in conversations every week, month. I mean, it's certainly, it's a challenge, of course, and especially when you look like us with our type of content and our beloved, but, you know, salty readership or however you want to describe it. I mean, you know what you're getting when you're coming to us and you know who else you're going to find there. And we'll be honest in saying that certainly creates challenges. We alluded earlier to how we took a slow rollout phase, and that was really important. Once we stepped beyond Sports Plus, where we knew there were going to be some challenges there, but because it was part of a paid program, we thought that might be a little bit more self-policing in a slightly different atmosphere than when you come back out to the wild. So when we first brought it out to outside of that program into sports in general, we only started with five articles at a time. And we stayed there for a while because we wanted to really get a sense of what was going to happen, how much engagement was there going to be. We had no idea what to expect, even with whether or not we would be getting a lot of comments, certainly what the tone or the tenor of that might be, and what type of moderation we might need to apply to it and how that resourcing would have to look and what have you. So we started we started very slowly. We, like I said, five stories a day for a while. Then we ramped up to a little bit more of sports and a little bit of more and tried to go through those various learning processes, both ourselves, but also as a partnership with you all and your team. So we still felt we got a little bit more comfortable and had a little better sense of what might be coming. And then again, slowly, methodically rolling it out to other sections. But so we were very deliberate about it. Another thing too is like, we need to be specific about which types of articles it does or doesn't appear on, especially when you're covering stuff that is hard news. Some articles just aren't appropriate to have that. And you need to be making that editorial judgment as part of it. And then there's a sort of the, you know, the community and safety standards side is something that's always on as far as the learning process and the engagement. And sometimes it can be as simple as discovering that, well, if you have an article about hockey and the word puck is on your blacklist because it happens to rhyme with something else, that's not going to be a really good user experience for people who want to talk about last night's game, right? So that's a, a fairly innocuous example, but you know, there's the same types of things on the other end of that spectrum. And luckily there's a certain amount of self-policing within the community as well, their ability to, to flag comments, but also people will write into us and they'll present some bad actors that we might not have found as quickly as we would have liked to have ourselves. And that lets us really look into, well, what was it that allowed this person in this type of comment to appear without it being caught through our various steps? And then, you know, like everything else, you just have to keep learning, keep growing, and really make sure it's a, it's a partnership and something that you have a lot of communication around. And uh, Arshel, anything you want to add there? Yes. So the key word to everything that Michael just said is the partnership, right? So we have the partnership with Open Web, but internally, we were also really thoughtful about having our partnership with the editorial team who owns the content, right? So right from the start, when we started launching with the five articles, we made sure that the editorial team was trained and knew how to work within the moderation system and also knew how to work with the open web team. So when Michael says always on, it really is always on. So we did that from day one and we continue to have 
uh, I would call it the moderating committees that meet every two weeks to look at metrics, to look at what needs to be improved. And that would include process and including all the tech that we have in place to make sure we're, we're putting our best foot forward when it comes to safety. And, you know, we won't pretend that it's perfect and it takes some learning, but if, if part of the tenor image of your question was other organizations being rightfully cautious or having questions around this, I would just say, again, if we and our content can pull this off, then my guess is you all can too. Yeah. Um, you know, every community obviously is quite different and we have the ability through our tech to work with each community individually. Um, actually, in Lior, you can probably elaborate on this better than me. Uh, go for it. Well, I, I totally uh, I agree. And I think at the end of the day, uh, New York Post and other publishers want to focus on creating high quality content, right? And, and, and it's frightening to add conversations and you don't know what people will say, what will be the toxicity level. And, and the partnership for me at least means that we need to build a trust that we can, you know, that we can be relied upon uh, for our moderation. And the moderation, as Michael said, it is, it is challenging. It's a never ending game. We need to continue to evolve our both community moderation tools and also our AI and machine learning models to improve ongoingly as communication changes, as a way of people communicating these changes, uh, whether it's text, audio, emojis, whatever this is. And, you know, sometimes when you go to sports articles, maybe the language is a bit more free than going to news and politics, you know, uh, uh, articles that should be more strict in a way. So at the end of the day, we want to try to build flexibility in our moderation to support any type of content and any type of moderation and continue improving because it's an endless game. Um, so yeah, this is like my two cents on that. And you know, yeah. Lior mentioned certain sections or verticals of coverage, and I'd expand that it's not even only just that, but it's just areas of passion, right? Like sports is yep. a seemingly safe space, but it's an area of passion where people get deeply worked up positively and negatively over things, both as it relates to them and the, the sports and the teams and the players that they're following, but also their fellow fans and, you know, the fans of teams that they might happen to like a lot less than their own team. And so that just means where there's passion, that's where all of this really comes into play in really wonderful, great, amazing ways, but also where you have to be very careful. 100% agree. Okay, great. Um, so let's go on to a topic that we touched on just a few minutes ago. Uh, this is about first party data. Uh, so, you know, we're a couple of years into the partnership of, as we've been talking about and engagement with the community is obviously, you know, quite strong. Uh, between commenting, reactions, there are a lot of ways for users to engage and thus for the team of the post to collect first party data along the way. So um, Arshel, I'll ask you this one first. Um, how does the first party data that you collect from the community support your strategic goals and growing engagement, loyalty, and, and other goals that you may have as well? Sure. I like to think about that as a, as a two-phased um, roadmap for me. So the first phase, which Michael touched on earlier, is first party and first party data and email capture, right? So that's sort of the first thing we started out with. But then going back to what I said earlier, when we think about community, it's also behaviors that we can get from the event that, events that we collect from our non-logged in users, right? So we also collect non-logged in user event data 
from the partnership that we have with Open Web. So first, email capture has, I don't have the numbers in, in front of me, but Open Web has really played a big role in getting more users to sign up on our, to register and sign up on our site and participate in the community. But second, we also are seeing what Open Web calls the observer event data. These are people who don't log in and comment, but these are people who hover on and watch the conversation. So I don't know, maybe Lior, you know how many attributes of a user's behavior we, we can collect from, from the listeners, but we do collect that now. And we augment our, our existing first party data that we have in our identity graph with open web data to then get to the next best action for our users. So that's sort of phase two in our roadmap. And that could mean a better ad presentation, a better marketing offer, a better affiliate offer that we would have. And of course, content personalization, which is coming down on, on our roadmap. That's a lot of things. It's like our list is is just growing and it's long and, and it's a lot of data that we're getting to, to help with our first party data initiative. Yeah, go ahead, Michael. It's, uh... Oh, no, I've, Eric shows our Joanna first party data. I just do what she tells me to do. So I have nothing to add. <laughs> uh, and there are a ton of things, as you said, Arishel, on that list. Um, and it just goes to show how, um, how it, crucial it is. Um, uh, Lior, anything you want to add there? And I think if you do know the exact number of data points we can collect, that'd be great. If not, we'll have to get back to everyone. Yeah, we will get back to everyone. It's a lot, but uh, we will get back to everyone. But in general, right, uh, in every social network, basically, the ratio is pretty much 1% of users creating content and 99% of users reading that content, consuming that content. So the way we see it is we want to use both, right, both. How do we use first-party data to get users to create more content? And how do we use data to improve the experience for those who are observing it and reading it to create better experience. But you've touched about registrations, right? So registration is re really, really important. But what we want to focus on is not just registrations, because we want to make sure that when users come back, we know that they are who they are, because if they're not logging in again in their next session, then this registration is not useless, but less valuable, right? If we're looking into leveraging first-party data for better targeting uh, in the future, so we want to make sure that users are not just register, registered, but also keep logging in. And this is where we want to put our focus on as well. Um, and, and, and yeah, like this is, this is the way we see at the end of the day, how can we extract the conversations data and the contextual data of the articles and take the community of content creators and take the community of content readers and try to also, you know, project on the entire uh, user base for improving the engagement, but also helping our partners have better ads targeting at the end of the day. Great. Um, so I'm going to move on to the last question, but before I do, I mean, we should have about 10 minutes for Q&A after. So um, anyone who has a question who hasn't already put in, we have a few in there now, just use the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen. Uh, and it looks like, yeah, we'll have about 10 minutes to answer. Um, okay. So for the last question here, uh, this one is a little bit broader, a little bit more forward-looking. This is about um, what you think the future of community might look like in the face of all the emerging technology that we have. 
And we decided to include this question because, of course, um, if you read any sort of tech news, uh, generative AI everywhere for the last several weeks or months, shortly before that, Web3 and the metaverse dominating the discussion for a year um, and certainly not going anywhere. Um, and the thing about these technologies, I think pretty much everybody would agree, they're really in their infancy. They're just starting to change how we interact online. Um, so I'm actually going to throw this one to Lior first uh, for change things up. Uh, so let me, I'll, I'll ask you, um, how do you see these technologies changing your definition of community? And how do you see the role of community kind of evolving uh, over the next few years as it relates to these new technologies? Yeah, well, um, so new technologies, as always, bring both opportunities and challenges, right? So on the other hand, like on the one hand, there's new personalization capabilities and new ways for people to express themselves. But on the other end, there's like challenges around user privacy, safety, right? You know, I'm a, as a parent, I want to make sure that my kids will live in a safety online communities. Uh, but looking specifically on these new technologies, we face the rise of misinformation, right? Because it's so easy to create new content in which you barely understand whether it's true or not. And also moderation, because as we know, people can start creating with generative AI, whether it's text, audio, videos. Uh, so these are true challenges that we see. Uh, but, but in general, I think that the role of community will not change because first of all, communication is a basic need for human. Uh, and, and being part of a community, as I mentioned earlier, is also a basic need. Uh, at the end of the day, what I believe that will change is how people communicate, right? Um, I believe that all of those new technologies are providing new ways of people to self-express themselves. And whether it's text, audio, videos, and even emojis, right? We know people talking about emojis, and this is an, another challenge of moderation, by the way. Uh, but at the end of the day, we look at open web and communities in general. How can we leverage AI, for example, to allow users to express themselves in a better way? but also in a more civil way. Um, but I want to say something else that is not just related to technology, but it's also some trends, right? If you look at the next generation trends, loneliness increases dramatically in the world. And, and the next generation general desire to make an impact, I believe that will continue to drive more engagement in online communities as people will continuously look for ways to be part of tribes, right? To be part of communities. Uh, today, it's mostly online. Thousands of years ago, it was tribes uh, in the forest. Uh, they do want to achieve self-improvement, right? Look at the influencer market and the content creator market. Everybody wants to show their, you know, their know-how and gain their audience and followers. Uh, this is like the new self-achievement, basically, in today's uh, di digital media. And lastly, everybody's looking for interesting stuff, both for their own entertainment or to find new topics to talk with their friends. So then again, they can be part of the tribe. So I think that in general, you know, communities moving forward, it's, it's, it's not going to be a product or a feature. Putting a commenting section is not enough. Uh, it requires a lot of, a lot of attention. And specifically, as we discussed around the moderation, and doing that, these communities in a civil and a healthy way is very, very challenging. And, and this is why we are here at the end of the day. 
Uh, this is 100% focus and mission, and we want to make sure that our partners focus on what do they, they do best and help them you know, grow a, a healthy community with the tools that we see. So in general, technology will ship it will shape, will shape how users communicate, but the role of community will stay um, firm and will continue to grow. Interesting stuff. Um, RHL, anything you want to add in there? Yeah, I agree with Lior, and that community is here to stay, and it will only get stronger. I think people participating in some kind of discussion, I think that the the stigma of that will go away only, and I say only if the technologies that support it, like AI, machine learning, and all the other ones that are, are here to stay, can enable a safety and trust, a safe and trusted community, right? So when I think about this, I'm pretty selfish in the way I think about how technology should play a role in the future, especially with community. I'm selfish for the post. I'm selfish also for my family and for myself. Like I believe that autonomous moderation is going to be a thing. Um, the more the technology matures, the better that'll grow, the more trusted it will become in the community. Two, sentiment analysis, when that is when that is truly a thing, because I, I still have a hard time sort of figuring out how sentiment analysis really understands how to to participate in publishing. And then of course, Michael talked about this a little bit earlier on the operation side. If we can, if technology can help with the decisioning of when to enable or disable um, comments, depending on the sentiment of the story. And then four and five, four, uh, four and five I have automated conversations with, with our audience that, that continue to engage with us either via email or on platform. And then five on content and news validation. So I think that's sort of where technology can help. And those are the five ways I, I think about it. And Michael, go ahead. Uh, you know, someday it's just going to be thousands of chatbots commenting to each other on articles written by chatbots, and we really won't need to do anything, will we? Um, no, you know, listening to some of those themes that just came up, I think one of the great challenges for ourselves and that I'd push back on on you all and peer companies like you is you know, we we think and we use the word user so much in our industry, but it's such a dehumanizing word. And it's really easy to forget. We, and we talk about safe spaces, which is a really important way to be thinking about these spaces we're creating. But it's even more, it goes beyond just being safe, right? It's what is the emotional currency that we're providing to our users? Is this a positive and uplifting or is this a negative and kind of enraging space to be in, an experience to have? Are people flaming each other? Are people having constructive conversations that they feel happy to be participating in? And how can we how can we emphasize that? How can we emphasize the emotional currency? And that's not to say that you know, comments are always going to have negative expression that can be done that can be done in a constructive, positive way or not. But we know it's not only comment on something 
that makes you happy. Like I'm realistic about that, of course, but just how can we continue to use these tools that we have to create not just a safe space, but a space that people felt positive about participating in, even if it was expressing something that happens to be a negative sentiment. Yeah, totally. I think that's something that we ask ourselves a lot, actually. And Lior, I'm sure you're shaking your head. Something that we we talk about a lot at Open Web is how do we prioritize quality? It doesn't mean we're happy and always in agreement. Discord, you know, disagreement, discord in the community is totally natural, totally normal, um, and in some ways very beneficial. Helps it evolve. Um, but how do we manage it to create an experience that's overall positive and moving both that community uh, in the right direction, but the people in it as well, and their evolution is, you know, uh, as a greater as a greater uh, community and society. Um, it's kind of how Open Web usually talks about it, looks at these things. Um, but that's great. Okay, well, thanks everybody um, for, you know, going through the couple of questions that we had planned. Now we have four from the audience. Um, so I'm going to try to go to these really quickly. We have about six minutes. Um, so I think we should probably be able to get through them. So I'll go in order that they came in. Um, the first one is from an anonymous attendee. Uh, this one asks, do you encourage your authors to participate in comments? And how much time do they dedicate to interacting, if so? And are they involved in the moderation? So this one is about the, the authors of the pieces. Uh, and this could be Arshel or Michael. Yeah, I'm not sure who would be best to answer. Now, the only time we have authors participate in the discussion is through Ask Me Anything. We don't, we do through Open Web have the capability for what we call reporter badges. Is that the right term? Um, but we don't have that enabled at the moment. And Arishal, so even on Sports Plus, we don't have our own folks popping in there. It's something we've always talked about wanting we to do, do. We do not. I mean, needless to say, the our authors are, there's so much, so many responsibilities and work put upon them, not just to be writing what they're writing, but to be tweeting and to be doing all these other things that we're asking them to do. I think it's a great opportunity though. And it's something you certainly see happen in a lot of other publishers. And, you know, you can even think of, I've thrown the phrase around so much about kind of the virtuous cycle you can get out of an interaction you can have in comments where that can lead to actual other posts being written and you know a really great example off our platform and your platform is say like certain times newsletters where they'll ask questions the the newsletter author will ask a question get some great feedback and that turns into like the entire content of another post that they're going to write the following week and i've seen that happen so many times so even if we're not doing it to the extent that we have the capability to do i think it's something that can be very enriching for both the authors and for the community for for a publisher to be able to do more yeah i can i can end on like on my end this is one of the highest demand from community members to have more interaction with authors and staff members so this is definitely drives more engagement when it does happen and especially if the whole idea of community and as we were talking about at the very beginning boils down to this idea that it's not us, anonymous, faceless publisher, them, inhuman people that we call readers, right? It's about people chatting. And certainly when we talked about the way technology has changed, the way social media has changed, like you and the, and the boom of podcasts and the, the relationships we have with people who we listen to on podcasts now, 
those relationships have changed so much and you expect that human side of it to come back through kind of getting to like, you know, the theme of my last answer to the last prepared question too, right? That, that safe, positive space and that safe, positive interaction. I think it is fair for readers to expect that and positive for us to be able to provide it. One, one last thing, uh, honestly, on my end is that I see something that is challenging for our partners and OpenWeb is looking to help is today we see a lot of, you know, uh, authors are building their personal brand on Twitter and people follow them on Twitter because they want to hear from them and uh, be able to interact with them, you know, ideally as, as close as one-on-one and possible. Uh, and, and we want to help, you know, partners to provide authors the tools to also do that on site and having direct communication with community members is a crucial part of that. All right. Um, so I'll move on to the next uh, community question while we have some time. Um, this next one from Alexandra Roman. Um, she writes, I heard Michael say that not all articles get commenting functionality. Uh, do users get miffed by this? Do they get confused or annoyed when it's not on a particular article? I don't know if we have specific data. I don't know, Arisha, have you heard comments about that in your kind of digging through the weeds? I've not personally, but that doesn't yeah. mean they're not there. So we have. So just to answer that question, we do get feedback from our users when we don't have comments enabled on an on article, but not not enough to change our policy on which types of articles get get commenting enabled versus versus um, not. I mean, some of it's pretty intuitive, right? Especially again, we cover hard news, we cover metro news. If somebody got mugged at knife point, what are you gonna what are you going to invite in that comment section? If yep. if a toddler got into an accident that you're covering, what are you going to invite in that commenting section? I think it's intuitive to some people that it's just not always appropriate. I think, yeah, that, that's right. And also Alexandra, right? Like Alexandra, I think what, what we, when we talked earlier about learning and having, managing a community as a learning process, this is one of the things that we learned along the way, right? So when we first launched, I mean, even though we launched with a phased approach, there was a point in time where we had comments on all articles. And then the always on approach was monitoring the community to see where comments were best enabled. And that's that's how we we ended up with, with our current policy. Well, and we have just actually two more questions. We're pretty much at time, but I think we could probably do these very fast if you guys um, don't mind. Um, so this one's from Sophia Delgado. Uh, the question is, um, to summarize the question, basically, the have you used any marketing or comms to drive awareness of the new features, meaning commenting? Um, basically, she's saying that even with the community solutions, commenting, reactions, asking anything, they don't see lots of engagement. Um, so what would your advice be to drive more engagement on these? Or what have you maybe done to help drive engagement on them? I think one of the most important things is the visibility on the post itself, right? You can, you can market, hey, we now have comments registered for our site in a, in a generic way, but that's never going to be the same as this is a piece of, this is an article that you're engaged with right now and you can comment on it. And one of the ways that we do that is by having a 
comment call out block that goes within the article itself so that while you're reading the article there's a call to action right there that says x number of people have commented you know join the conversation and you can click on that and that'll take you straight down to the comment section of the page at the end of the day yes you want to socialize and you want to make it visible that as a generic general thing commenting is available but it's really going to come down to does that user want to engage with that piece of content in the moment that he or she is is experiencing it engaging with it and how do you get it visible to them that this opportunity is there so again for us really that kind of inline tout within the flow of the article has been very effective yeah we ha we have we've been doing that and we also have i think earlier when i was talking about first party data and the collection of events so we use the event data to then show a user um, a flyout, right? We did, we've been doing that over the last two years, a flyout when we think that that's, that they're just about to register and become a commenter, right? Based on the, the behavior that we, we have stored about that user. So for example, if Michael is hovering over a story and we know he's not a registered user, we'd pop him up with, we think you want to be a commenter kind of message. And you know, I'd add one more thing, and this sort of goes back to when we first had comments back in 2014 and earlier. Back then, and it's not necessarily what we do now, but back then, it wasn't just comments, leave a comment. It was a question. The person that wrote the post wrote a, a question to kind of provoke a response. And while that isn't necessary, if one of the challenges is trying to encourage more conversation within your community, then ask them questions to respond to very directly. And that can be a great way to get them engaged. And it, it doesn't only need to be, this is an article that's about a certain topic and here's a comments at the end. The whole post itself could be something to raise a topic and open it for discussion. So there's a lot of different ways to just take yeah. a completely direct approach and not it just be, hey, debate the topic of this thing you just read at the bottom. Leor, anything you want to add? I see your... No, I think they are 100% on spots. Uh, I think the only challenge that eventually happens is, let's say, comments, for example, is the like, bottom of the page, right, below the articles, and not all people are getting there. So at the end of the day, we're looking for ways to surface the community in a more seamless way. And one example is a thing that we will be doing in the future is allowing to embed comments in the articles right the same same as you embed tweets right so we can surface community engagement inside the article to drive uh conversation right where people consume the content so surfacing it up from the bottom of the page into where users are interacting is a technical way for us to help achieve that yeah and you have some other features that we don't happen to use at the time that you know where you can highlight the most commented posts or you can highlight you know, sort of like the most engaged with comments from other posts that really show that the community is active. And, you know, it's just sort of human nature. You see something like that and it just kind of makes you want to jump in. And yep. I think that's another great way to encourage yeah. that, even if it's something we don't happen to do ourselves in this moment. Yeah. And I yeah. think you also have the slide out option, which is my preference, but we don't have. <laughs> we do have the community question, by the way. I'm not sure if you're using that. But... Well, I know you built it for us. <laughs> yeah. Um, and those who use community question, it does it does tend to spark conversation. We've seen that really work. 
Um, okay, cool. Well, that's that was great. Uh, last question then, and uh, this is from another anonymous uh, user um, in the, in the audience. Um, could you explain further how you fight spam? In our experience, we notice that comment sections often get hit with all kinds of spam, regardless of the type of story and where the comments are being left. Yeah, I think some of this is definitely your machine learning and AI tools, and it sometimes takes some training. But I found even going back to the spot I am days when we were using you on just on Decider way back that your your technology picked up pretty quick. And if we had to train it to something, and I'll be honest, there are times even recently where I'm like, this is so baldly spam. How did that ever make it through to start with? But once you identify that and flag that, and again, the, the partnership and the always learning, I have found that it cleans itself up, that your tools clean it up pretty quickly from there. Agreed. And yet there's also, I mentioned, you know, the community somewhat polices itself. I think as an engaged commenter, one doesn't want to see that. And one knows that that's not the publisher that's doing that. It's not the platform that's doing that, but it's somebody barging into the party that they just don't want to be in the party. So I think they have a pretty good reason to want to be flagging that themselves, which hopefully gets the attention of human moderators or automated tools. Yeah, and I think in the admin portal, and Lior, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, our editors go in and they see what's been rejected, what's gone through, what have the most complaints on them. And um, from within the platform, you have this the strictness level. Am I, am I saying that right? Um, where you can you can modify the settings to either almost let just about everything through or like be really strict at what gets moderated. It's a legit and, question though. And you know, another thing is if you notice, do you guys have the ability to block by IP address? And sometimes you need to take that extra step too, because we know that like someone that's going to spam is going to spam as many posts as possible across as many articles as frequently as possible. And it's certainly whack-a-mole to start trying to go after them directly, certainly by username or what have you. But sometimes you need to block an IP address and those kinds of things. I mean, it's a, our, our anonymous user friend brings up a really great challenging question, but I think there's enough ways to go about it that it's not a reason to just avoid the whole thing. It's just one of the challenges that unfortunately you know you're signing up for, but th there are good ways to fight. Yeah, I can I can add to that. First of all, definitely, you know, machine learning models and community moderation is one, but there is one thing that is not moderation models that can help reduce spam dramatically is that we see a high correlation between users with real profiles and users without profiles are allowing themselves to do whatever they want, say whatever they want, and users with their own profiles are more respectful for their opinions. And in general, this is a big focus for us, how do we can provide more ways for people to build their profiles, value their profiles, right? We won't say anything, you know, we won't spam our LinkedIn profile, right? Because it represents ourselves professionally. So the, the more people value their profile at the open web, uh, the less spam uh, we will eventually see, even without moderation models. Very cool, okay. Um, all right, well, I think that wraps it up. Um, so thanks you again, uh, Arshel, Michael, Lior, for taking the time and staying the extra uh, nine minutes. Uh, and look forward to seeing everybody at the next discussion. Uh, thanks again, everybody who joined today. All right, you've been listening to the Community Exchange Podcast. 
brought to you by OpenWeb. Arshel, Michael, it was great speaking with you both. Uh, thanks for your time and thank you for sharing your insights.